Hello, and welcome to the Jane Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where usually we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Jane Wolf one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're live at PhilCon, the world's oldest and longest running SFCon. And we're here today to commemorate Gardner Dozois, who passed away this year. Dozois, of course, is, is well known to SF fans as the editor of Asimov Science Fiction Magazine, uh, and, and really especially as the editor of the annual anthology, The Year's Best Science Fiction, uh, which he did for 35 years. Dozois was a, a longtime resident of Philadelphia, and also, I think, the, the real fulcrum of the SF community here. Now, I, I never had the chance to meet him, but he was a massive part of my adolescence. I have every year's best science fiction uh, starting the year that I was in seventh grade, and I get a lot of joy out of going back and looking at my notes about which stories I liked and which ones I didn't, uh, all of which was really geared towards helping me construct a list of novels that I wanted for Christmas that year. Right. Well, this episode, we'll be discussing Garner Dozois' short story. Story, the Peacemaker, which was a Nebula Award winner for Best Short Story in 1983. There's a lot of really prescient material in this story. Uh, Dozois was really on to a lot of the types of paranoia that might drive America, especially in a post 9-11 world. So I'm really excited for us to have a little time to recap and discuss the story. So Glenn, let's just get started with the recap. Well, Dozois opens this story, I think, really masterfully and with a, just a really extraordinarily beautiful paragraph. So I'm just going to read it. Roy had dreamed of the sea, as he often did. When he woke up that morning, the wind was sighing through the trees outside with a sound like the restless murmuring of surf. And for a moment, he thought that he was home, back in the tidy brick house by the beach, with everything that had happened undone. And hope opened hotly inside him like a wound. This really is a stunning opening paragraph. Immediately, we get a sense that things are not as they should be. Our protagonist, Roy, is displaced for some reason, and it has something to do with the sea. Already just one paragraph in, I'm hooked. Right. There's a, there's real mystery here, just right from the start, that we want to, as readers, we want to unravel. And Dozois is going to do this just sort of throughout the whole the whole story. We're going to get little, little breadcrumbs, little hints uh, as we try to kind of put together the pieces of this puzzle. Well, as Roy wakes up, he forgets that he isn't at home. He, he forgets that his mother and his beloved dog aren't there, and they won't ever be again. Now, Roy lives in a big attic. It's a single room at the top of a farmhouse, and he lives there with other kids. They all sleep on cots in this room that is icy cold, even now at the, the start of spring. Roy gets up and he, he goes to the single window in the room. I think we all know this image from horror movies. And he looks out. And here, Dozois gives us another gorgeous description that also tells us about Roy and about his goals. The wind smelled of pine resin and wet earth not of salt flats and tides. And the bird sound that rode in on that wind was the burbling of wrens and the squawking of blue jays, not the raucous shrieking of seagulls. And I just love how Dozois uses these senses to show us a, a kid who feels out of place and just wants to go home to his family and the familiar flora and fauna and the familiar sights and smells. But Dozois uses this scene of Roy looking out the window and, and thinking of home to, to build up this speculative world for us as well, right? So we learn that Roy is in farm country and there are forested hills rolling away into the distance. And then... Roy thinks about the sea, and he thinks the sea has not chased him here to this hill country. Not yet, anyway. 
Right. I love the technique that Dozwa is employing here. First, much of the language we get from Roy's perspective is kind of claustrophobic and ethereal at the same time. And this just tells us that we're inside the mind of a character who is trapped in some way. And he can't really admit it fully to himself, but he's alive to the natural world beyond his window. I also have a soft spot for stories that do a lot of imagery work in the opening of the story so that later on with just a word, the author can return you to that place, the stuffy attic, the smells, the groaning house later in the story. And this is just done expertly here in the beginning of this story. Right. All of these descriptions are, are working on really all of the senses and, and including really memory as a sense as well. And so this is all really emotive and it is just masterful and gorgeous. Well, now we get some explication about what it is that has happened with the sea and, and why Rory is living in an attic with a bunch of other kids, but without his mother and without his dog. There has been a marine transgression, as the scientists call it, though, of course, everyone just calls it the flood. Climate change warmed the oceans and the polar ice melted and the flood washed away the old world forever. The East Coast is underwater. The rising ocean is being held at bay by the wall of the Appalachians. And on the West Coast, it's the Sierras and the Cascades that are performing a similar function, while the Midwest has been ravaged by the overflowing Great Lakes. I think in the early 80s, probably this needed to be explained to an audience, but I think everyone reading this or listening to us now here in 2018 have all seen this computer simulation before. And Roy vividly remembers the morning when the flood began. He'd been down by the New Jersey beach when the ocean had crested the seawall, and it just kept coming and coming, and the water came all the way to his house. And his family, like millions of others, fled inland, uh, taking shelter in one temporary refuge after another. And the whole time that they're fleeing from place to place, Roy has felt like somehow he did something to cause the flood, that the, the game he'd been playing on the beach that day was some kind of magic ritual that he had accidentally performed some chance combination of of gesture and word that had untied the bonds of the sea. And Roy often feels like the sea is chasing him personally. First of all, Dozois is leading heavily on this allusion to the flood, uh, which is, you know, a story from Genesis in the uh, Old Testament. And he's inferring that humanity, or at least North America, is being punished for some wrongdoing that has directly created this catastrophe. Roy, though, I think, as you pointed out, Glenn, believes that he is somehow personally responsible for the flood. And he's really misallocated the causal chain that's led to this event and is carrying all of this guilt around himself. And we'll see more and more of Roy's trauma um, and the effects of Roy's trauma and how it impacts his character as the story progresses. But another thing uh, has come to my mind when I think about this illusion of the flood. And this is the phrase which has been attributed to King Louis XV, who and maybe in a pro- a, who maybe in an apocryphal story is quoted as saying, uh, après moi le déluge, after me the flood, suggesting, at least in one sense, that he does not really care what happens to his kingdom after he's gone. And this attitude betrays the sense that somebody is going to be responsible for caring for the kingdom after the king has left. And and dealing with all the 
tragedy that's really left in the wake. And, and Roy, as we'll soon find out, is one such person who will be held accountable for this catastrophe. And I think both senses of the flood work aptly for the themes of the story. But one thing to just keep keyed in on is the, the real sense of misplaced guilt that Roy carries around. Yeah, trying to, to figure out who or what has brought this flood on people is really the, the crux of this story. And religion, as we've, we've talked about already, is going to play a huge role in this. But we're going to see in some ways kind of this is a story about, about different people having different ideas about who is responsible for the flood and what has to be done about it now. Well, Roy's been standing at this window thinking about all of this, but he's done musing now. And so it, it's time to start his day uh, and really to think no further ahead than that. Uh, Dozois writes that Roy learned in the refugee camps to take life not just one day at a time, but one second at a time. And Roy's gotten up a few minutes before Sarah normally comes upstairs to kick the kids awake. And because he's made some noise, he's woken up those other kids and, and some of them are watching Roy with hostile eyes. But Roy thinks that none of the other kids would dare to complain, and, and this thought brings him both pleasure and pain. And this is the first hint that we get that there is something special about Roy. But we're going to get some more of that in just the very next scene. Roy goes outside to make use of the slit trench, a, an outdoor latrine. Uh, and this tells us something about the state of plumbing in this world, or at least the state of plumbing where Roy lives. His uncle Abner is there as well, and they have a really awkward, uh, really uncomfortable conversation. Uncle Abner wants to know if Roy has begun playing with himself yet, and when Roy says that he hasn't, Abner comments that, nonetheless, he can see that Roy has begun puberty. And of course, this is all supposed to make us feel uncomfortable. Dozois is, is using this, uh, this conversation here to suggest that Uncle Abner, uh, you know, he might not be the hero of this story. And there's a little more of this right here. The reason that Uncle Abner is concerned about masturbation is that it's vitally important that Roy remain pure, uh, that he not let himself be sullied in any way. Everything has to be just right. Otherwise, nothing else will mean anything. Roy has to be right in his soul. Roy has to let the peace of God into his soul because everything depends on Roy now. So this is really our, our second indication that there is something special going on with Roy. We also get in this section the second case of imagery in this story that associates Roy to the spirit world like a ghost. Dozois writes that Roy moves through the still silent house like a ghost. There's fog and smoke all over the place as well uh, when, when we're looking out the window and seeing the landscape. What Dozois is doing here through imagery and simile is, is reinforcing the importance of Roy's, of Roy's soul, of his spirit. We're dealing with spirit imagery all over the place. And all of this really becomes concrete at the end of this section of, of the awkward conversation between Roy and Uncle Abner. And it's really clear now that an important religious ritual is going to take place for Roy. He needs to keep his body pure and clean, though the water imagery in this story is so far not seen as a purifying element, which is really interesting. You know, he needs to keep himself clean for whatever other ritual they're going to perform. He needs to remain undefiled. And as we'll see in a moment, the purity that Uncle Abner is primarily concerned about is sexual purity. The food that these folks are about to eat does not seem to follow any, you know, clean food laws. It's not kosher. 
<laughs> right. It, it is now time for breakfast in this story, but since it is actually lunchtime here at the con, I'm not going to tease everyone with a description of the food, but we do learn some interesting things about this speculative world. One, as you say, Brandon, there there are clearly no rules about what is okay to eat and what is not. Uh, there are eating non-kosher food. They're eating bacon at this breakfast. The breakfast begins only after a rambling grace, an invocation by Uncle Abner. And at this meal, there are two classes of people. There are the brethren who get a a pretty good spread of food and, and even some cups of chicory, which is passing for coffee in this world. And then there are the refugee kids. They typically only get cornmeal mush, and sometimes during the last winter, they were fed as close to nothing as the law and appearances would allow. But Roy, who is a refugee kid, he gets a meal even better than what the brethren get to eat, and at the end of the meal, he even gets a coveted black market item, a Hershey bar. Uh, So this is our third indication that something special is going on with Roy, but we still don't quite know what it is. But at the meal... Dozois introduces us to some of the, the secondary characters. These are, are members of the Brethren. And, and they aren't all greeting breakfast with the, the same attitude. Mrs. Kramer and Mrs. Reardon are, are jolly and beaming. They're very happy about whatever is going on here. But Mrs. Ziegler has been crying. So it's clear that something is amiss. Right. And, there's, we, and we still have some time before we really figure out what that is. But to me, you know, my first time going through the story, this feels like a last meal situation. There, and there's also some real indication of confusion and pity around Roy as a person and what his role in this ritual really is. Uh, but I really love what Dozois does next by giving us a bit more of the world of the reconfigured America. Right. Here's where we're going to get probably the most kind of explicit expositional type of world building here. The, the federal government of the United States still exists, but it's, it's struggling to put America back together again. It's a bit like Humpty Dumpty is the, the metaphor that's used in the story. And it's this government, the federal government, not the government of Pennsylvania or the town or the, the county where this is all taking place that runs this program for flood refugees. Because he has taken in these kids, Abner gets some money from the federal government. It's basically, you know, a type of foster program. But Abner supplements this by hiring out the refugee kids to his neighbors, uh, and sometimes even to the town and the state government. And Dozois does not hesitate to say that this is basically a form of slave labor, right? These kids have no choice in the matter, and they, uh, they have to do some real backbreaking work repairing the infrastructure that was destroyed uh, in the chaos that followed the flood. But when the other refugee kids are sent off to do this sort of work after breakfast, Roy gets to stay at Abner's farm. And this is a new thing for him. And really, he has nothing to do at the farm. And he almost misses going to work with the other refugee kids. But only almost, because the work conditions are like slavery. They really suck. And Roy realizes that being bored, although that can suck, is in fact better than being a slave. Yeah, I'll have a little bit more to say about the the world building in a little bit. Um, but I think in this section, we get this other indication of the type of pathological guilt that Roy seems to carry around with him and that he feels bad for the kids on the crew. And part of that makes him wish, part of that bad feeling makes him wish he could still do the work. And this could also just be the result of him being idle for the past two months, catching a break because the task he's going to be called upon to perform is so important and they can't risk his safety. And 
as you said, Glenn, when he's thinking about this and all these thoughts are in his head, he realizes that he prefers boredom to the backbreaking slave labor of the refugee kids. But this is just one really conflicted kid. Yeah, pro tip. If you're ever given the choice between being bored and doing construction work, pick doing bored. Well, I think you're, you're right, Brandon, to, to point to guilt here being kind of the central emotion or the central even really theme maybe of this story and that, that, that Roy just, his response to everything is just to feel guilty. He feels like he caused the flood and he's, he's got guilt about that. But then here when he's getting this special treatment for something that is going to turn out not to be a good thing, and he knows this already, he feels guilty for that as well. So at this point, Roy's just hanging around the the farmhouse and by mid-morning a small crowd of people have gathered around and clearly something is going on with Roy and people are interested in it even if we as the readers still don't know what it is and Roy recognizes some of these people but he he doesn't really know who they are because as a rule the refugee kids were were kept separate from the town community Um, and even when refugee kids could go into town. Um, Abner's sect, the brethren, really never went into town either. So there's sort of double reason why Roy doesn't recognize or doesn't know who any of these people are. And one woman in the crowd shouts at Roy. She calls him a heretic and a blasphemer, and she shakes her fist at him, at which point Roy goes back into the house, but he discovers that there's shouting going on at the house as well. Mrs. Ziegler, this woman who'd been crying at breakfast, uh, Mrs. Ziegler and her husband and their kids and two other families of brethren have decided to leave the sect and to leave the farmhouse. Uncle Abner is unpleased about this, but he doesn't do anything to stop them. Instead, he scorns them and he quotes the book of Revelation. He says, we spit you up out of our mouths. Don't ever think to come back. And on her way out, Mrs. Ziegler stops and she gives Roy a hug. And she begs him. She says, please come with us. We'll find a place for you. Everything will work out fine. But Roy doesn't go with her. And she calls him a fool for that choice. And with Mrs. Ziegler and her group gone, Abner stares at Roy. And at this moment, Roy thinks that Uncle Abner looks uncertain and even vulnerable. Right. This is a really dark vision of America in crisis. We get the sense that many Americans have chosen to act out their anger and frustrations regarding their lost resources and comforts on people who fled the zones where the flood came up. And it's at the point where the government has to motivate people to help refugee children, American citizens even, uh, by setting up a program whose result is basically slave labor. And then we get a vision that the religious communities that have developed in the wake of this disaster also take advantage of the vulnerable in order to achieve their own ends. And this leads to yet more conflict and and really the sense that there are no safe places in this world, it seems, for the outcast and the stranger. Well, around, around noon, a, a carload of reporters arrive at the farm. And, and here's where we get a little bit more uh, world building. The reporters, they come in a car, but it's not a regular car like I think probably most of us have driven here today. But it's a, a bulky new methane burner. Presumably extracting oil is now something of a problem. The reporters are mostly from State College and Altoona, where the new state capital is. And these are, are places where, where newspapers are beginning to be produced again. But one of the reporters is from Denver, which is now the capital of the United States, because Denver is one of the few large cities to have been safe from the rising water level. 
And Uncle Abner seems to love the attention he's getting from these reporters. He poses for photographs, though he's careful not to answer any of their actual questions. And one of the photographs they take is of Abner signing some legal papers and uh, even making some kind of legal declaration out loud, like swearing an oath of some sort. And then the reporters leave. But all of this points to how whatever is happening here at this farm in central Pennsylvania is of national interest and is also not merely a, a private religious matter of the brethren, but also involves the law, right? The, the government is aware of whatever it is that's going on here on this farm. And this becomes really clear in the next scene when the sheriff arrives. Sam Braddock has been the sheriff for a long time, since even before the flood, his uniform is old and patched, and Dozois describes him as grizzled with iron-gray hair and a tired face. Sheriff Braddock is here to talk Abner out of what he describes as damned tomfoolery. And he adds that he simply won't allow Abner to do whatever it is that his brethren are getting ready to do. He says, we don't want this kind of thing going on in this county. But Abner calls his bluff. Uh, first of all, as a legally sanctioned and recognized church, what they're about to do is perfectly legal. And his church isn't the first to do this sort of thing. Abner cites three cases just in the last year in which the appellate court has upheld the Freedom of Worship Act that lets them do this, whatever this is. Now, Braddock doesn't like this argument, and he, he characterizes the Freedom of Worship Act as a bad law enacted by a panicked legislature that bought into the, the nonsense about the flood being Armageddon. And here, Abner pushes back, and, and he's going to get now to give us a, a pretty creepy, villainous monologue. As far as he's concerned, the flood was the judgment of God. God condemned our world of industrial consumerism, and he has sent us back to living the way that our great-grandparents did, self-sufficiently and religiously. And if we don't go back to the old ways, humanity will pass from the earth. But... Abner says, it's hard work returning to the old ways because we have to relearn those ways. We have to reinvent them as we go, step by step. And another church did something exactly like what Abner's getting ready to do last year. And this year, that town doubled their crop yield. And the town where they all live, they need to double their crop yield too in order to stop living at subsistence level. There's so much going on in this section, so much that's revealed to us. On a world-building note, we're told that this story takes place maybe around the year 2030 or a little after that, maybe a few years after that, though it could be 2130 or 22 to 30. We're just told it's 30. Uh, and this note about a panic-stricken Congress totally changing the laws of the country, substituting justice for fear, really reminds me of the passing of the Patriot Act that was that was passed shortly after 9-11. And this story in this case really is eerily prescient and is a reminder to me uh, that following laws does not always lead to the best outcomes. Or, or maybe I should say that doing the right thing, acting justly, seeking out the good, doing those sorts of things are actions that occasionally exist beyond the framework of a nation's laws. And Glenn, you're absolutely right here to point out that Abner is a real villain. He's taking advantage of many people and the systems that allow him to operate as he does with government funding in order to do something that is just absolutely reprehensible. And we saw just a few moments ago his fear when he believed that Roy could potentially leave. 
But Roy's expressions of trauma, of experienced trauma, his blank eyes, his passivity, are being taken for acceptance. Abner is all too glad to have Roy locked in this traumatic state and to keep him in there for as long as possible. We see once again also the misallocation, the, the, the misunderstanding of these causal links. The belief that whatever action that the brethren are going to take will double, will double their crop yield is equal to Roy's belief that he accidentally caused the flood by playing the wrong way. And we're dealing with people here who are engaging with serious problems entirely the wrong way and have learned the wrong lessons from their Bibles. I mean, crucial to the flood story is God promising that he would never do this again, which would raise the question for a theologically minded reader uh, of, of who is really responsible for this flood and who is it that the brethren are worshiping. And just as a final note, there's also a mild indictment of capitalism here, as you brought up. Abner's concern that people have lost their ability to be self-sufficient due to the availability of cheap consumer goods isn't really that far off in the sense that there is a real link to the processes that allow us to access cheap consumer goods, merchant, shipping, you know, endless parades of trucks on the road, exploitation of labor and pollution laws outside of the United States. Um, and something like what this story calls global warming. So there's just an awful lot that, that Dozois is hitting on that are much more relevant problems today maybe than when he was writing this story. Some of, some of Abner's uh, motives here, or at least the motives that he states, are, are maybe not actually all that bad. He wants to provide, be able to provide more food for people from his farm. Uh, and he's probably not wrong that, that global consumerism is taking a toll on the environment, on, on who we are as individuals, taking a toll on our souls. But we know already from the way that Dozois has been setting him up that Abner is a villain, that he is, he's an abuser, that these motives he's giving to the sheriff now are not to really his actual motives, that he's someone who enjoys uh, hiring out these kids, basically leasing them as slave labor to other people, uh, that he's using them for his own gain, his own profit. And it's clear he is the leader of this church. And so he's using his ability to make these types of speeches, to his, his ability to use this type of oratory for his own social position, to be the the boss, to be the, uh, you know, a big fish in a, a small pond of other delusional people here. And the sheriff is not convinced by Abner's monologue, and he shouldn't be, and nor should we. What they're doing is wrong, and the town will not stand for it. But Abner calls this bluff, too. More than half of the county is already with the brethren, most of the country folk, and even some of the townspeople, too. And here, Abner does something really villainous, because he also quietly threatens the sheriff's family, and he, he points out that he knows where the sheriff's nieces and nephews live. It, it, you know, it's a classy touch to the end of his speechifying. <laughs> right. So the sheriff has one last tactic here. He asks Roy if Roy wants to stay and go through with this. The law requires that Roy consent to whatever it is that's going to happen, and if, if Roy doesn't want to do it, then the sheriff will take him away, and he will find someplace safe for him. But Roy says, no, thank you. I'll stay. And that's that. And that night, there's a, a fire roaring in the parlor while Abner leads a worship service, exhorting Roy to let the peace of God into his heart. Roy drinks some wine, and he can tell that there's also some kind of sedative that's been uh, dissolved into it. But Roy doesn't need that sedative. The, the peace of God settled down on him months ago. 
The whole winter, he spent working as a slave, loading foundation stones, even during ice storms. And this is when Abner had first heard about the success at the other Brethren Church, the success that doubled their crop yield. And this is when Abner had first started to talk to Roy about the old ways. And this is when life for Roy became something like watching TV with the sound off. It's a, a real great way to describe depression, I think. Though... Now that Roy thinks about it, sitting in this parlor, not really listening to Abner's prayers, he's wondering if that feeling hadn't actually started even earlier, all the way back on the first day of the flood. That was the day he lost his dog. That was the day that his father died of a heart attack while he tried to load his family onto a boat. Roy thinks about his mother's death just a few months later. She had just given up. One day, she just sat down in the mud and closed her eyes and died. And Roy hasn't thought about his family, about his old life, in months. It's as if his mind shut itself off every time he came upon those memories. And he admits now that he had never cried for any of these family members, not even for his dog. But all he had to do was close his eyes and grief would come up like black bile at the back of his throat. This is really heartbreaking. It is really sad. And, you know, what's what's almost worse is that what we first encounter is Roy's real trauma, his depression, his inability to cope, uh, being the core cause of his mental state and the passivity could, could also be attributed to the fact that the brethren might be drugging him every night with his wine. And it's, it's just awful. But I, I really think that this section is meant uh, to hammer home some of the central traumatic events that have formed Roy What he's experiencing is not peace, but total dissociation and numbness. Everyone is either taking advantage of him or he's witnessing something awful and he's just decided to check out. There's almost no one in this story who has enough courage to even kidnap him or take him away and raise him. We have the sheriff and Mrs. Ziegler both urging him to do something. But as I said before, real good doing, really doing the right thing may occasionally, I think in in cases like this where laws are unjust, require you to outside, to act outside the law. And the absence of a hero is really one of the most troubling elements of this story. Roy himself has to rescue himself. And a child really should not be responsible for that. And the question that's really raised in my mind is why people are respecting his free will, Roy's free will at this point, and not actively seeking to take Roy away from this troubling situation. And this is a, a real problematic element of this this post-Diluvian uh, society that Gardner Dozois has created. Right. We've had a number of characters, two two characters, Mrs. Ziegler and Sheriff Braddock, who have, have said to Abner, this is wrong. What, what they're getting ready to do to Roy is immoral and wrong and it isn't going to solve the problem but abner cows them down he he keeps them from taking action and so while we've been talking about this story really being characterized by roy's trauma and roy's grief there is also an element here of cowardice where cowardice is the theme right that we could tell this story from the perspective of mrs ziegler or sheriff braddock uh and see them turning the wheels over in their mind of sheriff braddock saying well if i just kidnap roy if i pull out my gun right now and shoot abner and take this kid out of this dangerous situation what's going to happen to my niece and nephew and 
that seems to be, I think, one of the lessons that we're supposed to take from this story is, is about cowardice and our, a failure to protect kids from abusers. Right. Even Mrs. Ziegler, who has kids in tow, you get the sense that she would not be able to have the resources to care for an extra child. And so all they can do is nudge someone to act freely, but they're ignoring the fact that Roy is really not free in this story. He is lost. Well, we're going to get into the, the, the final scene now. It is still dark when they all leave the farmhouse, but the sky in the east is lightening and a mist flows slowly down the road to meet them. As the sky around the mountains begins to turn gray in the dawn, Roy imagines the sea eventually spilling into this land and swallowing the town and the farmhouse. The sea is going to follow him here. The brethren use some traffic flares to make a circle around Roy, and in the center of the ring, there is a a hollow in the ground. And naked now, Roy lays down in the hole. He settles into the cold mud. The brethren circle around him, and they watch as Abner raises a hunting knife and begins to pray. Roy doesn't listen to the prayer, but he watches calmly as Abner lifts the knife high into the air. At the last moment, Roy turns his head and looks to the east, as if he can see all the way to the ocean. And he wonders then if this will be enough. Will the fine, rich red gift of his death bring an end to the malevolent presence that brought the flood? And that's the last line of our story. It's a chilling line, and it's really, really amazing imagery, pulling again from Genesis. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But in this last section of the story, we see the full extent of Roy's guilt play out. The malevolent presence is the sea itself. And Roy's belief that he is responsible for this terrible catastrophe, his final bargaining with the sea, is an act of atonement in his mind. And I don't think that there's any real indication in this story outside of Roy's mind that he is actually responsible for the flood. Rather, this story really reads to me more as a dark indictment of human nature, of maybe a tendency to follow our worst instincts and remember wrong lessons when catastrophe strikes. And so the peacemaker reads as a warning to me. And you know, now, now I want to say a few words about the imagery at the end of the story. It's straight out of another Genesis story, the story where God puts an end to child sacrifice as part of religious rituals. And this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Again, I think part of what Dozois is pointing out here is a tendency for people to rationalize and justify whatever it is they want to do using their beliefs as a smokescreen. And so, Glenn, I just have one quick question for you here as we wrap up. Humanity is undeniably corrupt on many levels in this story. Do you read the flood as a natural disaster or as a judgment passed on mankind? Well, so I, I think that this is a science fiction story in which there is just a natural disaster. This well, not, maybe not natural, but it's a man-made disaster, but not a not a divine punishment for sure. And I think that Dozois is showing us that the a kind of human response to a tragedy that is beyond really our, our the, the proportions that of which we can really wrap our head around, right? It's too big for us to think about how can we undo this? How can we fix this? How could we have prevented it? Because there is no room, I think as we're all well aware of thinking about our own 
culpability and what our society needs to do about climate change, that individual choice, individual action is not enough. And that paralyzes us. It paralyzes us, makes us unable to act, and makes us feel helpless in the face of this. And so there's a real human tendency, a real human desire, a need to find something that we as individuals can do. And that's where this impulse to get right with God as an individual, and maybe as a small community, seems to be the only way that we can solve this problem. And I think I think here in the, the early 80s, Dozois is, is really writing a story here about the superstition of religion versus the rationality of science. I think that was a really still a big topic in Cold War science fiction. Well, we've got just enough time now, to, I think, to actually get some audience participation here. But we're going we're gonna to turn the mics off before I do that, because that won't get picked up. And uh, our audience listening on their way to work or while they're bench pressing or whatever doesn't want to hear a bunch of, uh, bunch of murmurs and, and inaudible mumbles. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha, And we want to thank everyone here for joining us today and helping us celebrate Garner Dozois. And we want to thank the PhilCon organizers for giving us a platform to do that. Uh, this has been really meaningful for, for me. Uh, we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>